Chapter Five, Part Two, of Arcadian Adventures with the Idle Rich. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Ferguson. Arcadian Adventures with the Idle Rich by Stephen Leacock. Chapter Five, The Love Story of Mister Peter Spillikins, Part Two. Now here, Mr. Newbury was saying a little later, waving his hand, is where you get what I think the finest view of the place. He was standing at the corner of the lawn where it sloped, dotted with great trees, to the banks of the little lake, and was showing Mr. Spillikins the beauties of Castel Casteggio. Mr. Newbury wore on his short, circular person the summer costume of a man taking his ease and careless of dress, plain white flannel trousers, not worth more than six dollars a leg, an ordinary white silk shirt with a rolled collar that couldn't have cost more than fifteen dollars, and on his head an ordinary Panama hat, say forty dollars. By Jove! said Mr. Spillikins as he looked about him at the house and the beautiful lawn with its great trees. It's a lovely place, isn't it? said Mr. Newbury. But you ought to have seen it when I took hold of it. To make the motor road alone, I had to dynamite out about a hundred yards of rock. And then I fetched up cement, tons and tons of it, and boulders to buttress the embankment. Did you really? said Mr. Spillikins, looking at Mr. Newbury with great respect. Yes, and even that was nothing to the house itself. Do you know I had to go at least forty feet for the foundations? First I went through about twenty feet of loose clay. After that I struck sand, and I'd no sooner got through that than, by George, I landed in eight feet of water. I had to pump it out. I think I took out a thousand gallons before I got clear down to the rock. Then I took my solid steel beams in fifty-foot lengths. Here, Mister Newbury imitated with his arms the action of a man setting up a steel beam, and set them upright and bolted them on the rock. After that, I threw my steel girders across, clapped on my roof rafters, all steel, in sixty-foot pieces, and then just held it easily, just supported it a bit. And let it sink gradually to its place. Mr. Newbury illustrated with his two arms the action of a huge house being allowed to sink slowly to a firm rest. You don't say so," said Mr. Spillikins, lost in amazement at the wonderful physical strength that Mr. Newbury must have. Excuse me just a minute," broke off Mr. Newbury, while I smooth out the gravel where you're standing. You've rather disturbed it, I'm afraid. Oh, I'm awfully sorry," said Mr. Spillikins. Oh, not at all, not at all," said his host. "I don't mind in the least. It's only on account of McAllister." "Who?" asked Mr. Spillikins. "My gardener. He doesn't care to have us walk on the gravel paths. It scuffs up the gravel so. But sometimes one forgets." It should be said here, for the sake of clearness, that one of the chief glories of Castel Casteggio lay in its servants. All of them, it goes without saying, had been brought from Great Britain. The comfort they gave to Mr. and Mrs. Newbury was unspeakable. In fact, as they themselves admitted, servants of the kind are simply not to be found in America. Our Scotch gardener, Mrs. Newbury always explained, is a perfect character. I don't know how we could get another like him. Do you know, my dear, he simply won't allow us to pick the roses, and if any of us walk across the grass, he is furious, and he positively refuses to let us use the vegetables. He told me quite plainly that if we took any of his young peas or his early cucumbers, he would leave. We are to have them later on when he's finished growing them. 
"'How delightful it is to have servants of that sort!' the lady address would murmur. "'So devoted and so different from servants on this side of the water! "'Just imagine, my dear, my chauffeur, when I was in Colorado, "'actually threatened to leave me merely because I wanted to reduce his wages. "'I think it's these wretched labour unions.' "'I'm sure it is. "'Of course we have trouble with McAllister at times, "'but he's always very reasonable when we put things in the right light.' "'Last week, for example, I was afraid that we had gone too far with him. "'He is always accustomed to have a quart of beer every morning at half-past ten. "'The maids are told to bring it out to him, "'and after that he goes to sleep in the little arbour beside the tulip-bed. "'And the other day, when he went there, "'he found that one of our guests, who hadn't been told, "'was actually sitting in there reading. "'Of course he was furious. "'I was afraid for the moment that he would give notice on the spot. "'What would you have done?' "'Positively, my dear, I don't know. "'But we explained to him at once that it was only an accident, "'and that the person hadn't known, "'and that of course it wouldn't occur again. "'After that he was softened a little, "'but he went off muttering to himself, "'and that evening he dug up all the new tulips "'and threw them over the fence. "'We saw him do it, but we didn't dare say anything.' "'Oh, no,' echoed the other lady. "'If you had, you might have lost him.' "'Exactly, and I don't think we could possibly get another man like him, "'at least not on this side of the water.' "'But come,' said Mr. Newbury, "'after he had finished adjusting the gravel with his foot, "'there are Mrs. Newbury and the girls on the veranda. "'Let's go and join them.' "'A few minutes later, Mr. Spillikins was talking with Mrs. Newbury "'and Dolphemia Russellier Brown, "'and telling Mrs. Newbury what a beautiful house she had. "'Beside them stood Philippa Furlong, "'and she had her arm around Dolphemia's waist.' and the picture that they thus made, with their heads close together, Dolphemia's hair being golden and Philippa's chestnut-brown, was such that Mr. Spillikins had no eyes for Mrs. Newbury, nor for Castel Castagio, nor for anything, so much so that he practically didn't see at all the little girl in green that stood unobtrusively on the further side of Mrs. Newbury. Indeed, though somebody had murmured her name in an introduction, he couldn't have repeated it if asked two minutes afterwards. His eyes and his mind were elsewhere. But hers were not, for the little girl in green looked at Mr. Spillikins with wide eyes, and when she looked at him she saw all at once such wonderful things about him as nobody had ever seen before. For she could see from the poise of his head how awfully clever he was, and from the way he stood with his hands in his side pockets she could see how manly and brave he must be, and of course there was firmness and strength written all over him. In short, she saw, as she looked, such a Peter Spillikins as truly never existed, or could exist, or at least such a Peter Spillikins as no one else in the world had ever suspected before. All in a moment she was ever so glad that she accepted Mrs. Newbury's invitation to Castel Casteggio, and hadn't been afraid to come. For the little girl in green, whose Christian name was Nora, was only what is called a poor relation of Mrs. Newbury, and her father was a person of no account whatever, who didn't belong to the Mausoleum Club, or to any other club, and who lived, with Nora, on a street that nobody who was anybody lived upon. Nora had been asked up, a few days before, out of the city to give her air, which is the only thing that can be safely and freely given to poor relations. Thus she had arrived at Castel Casteggio, with one diminutive trunk, so small and shabby that even the servants who carried it upstairs were ashamed of it. In it were a pair of brand-new tennis shoes, at ninety cents reduced to seventy-five, 
and a white dress of the kind that is called almost evening and such few other things as poor relations might bring with fear and trembling to join in the simple rusticity of the rich thus stood nora looking at mr spillikins as for him such is the contrariety of human things he had no eyes for her at all what a perfectly charming house this is mr spillikins was saying he always said this on such occasions but it seemed to the little girl in green that he spoke with wonderful social ease "'I am so glad you think so,' said Mrs. Newbury. This was what she always answered. "'You've no idea what work it has been. This year we put in all this new glass in the East Conservatory, over a thousand panes. Such a tremendous business!' "'I was just telling Mr. Spilligans,' said Mr. Newbury, "'about the work we had blasting out the motor road. You can see the gap where it lies better from here, I think, Spilligans. I must have exploded a ton and a half of dynamite on it.' "'By Jove!' said Mr. Spillikins. "'It must be dangerous work, eh? "'I wonder you aren't afraid of it.' "'One simply gets used to it, that's all,' said Mr. Newbury, shrugging his shoulders. "'But of course it is dangerous. "'I blew up two Italians on the last job.' He paused a minute and added musingly, "'Hardy fellows, the Italians. "'I prefer them to any other people for blasting.' "'Did you blow them up yourself?' asked Mr. Spillikins. "'I wasn't here.' answered mr newbury in fact i never care to be here when i'm blasting we go to town but i had to foot the bill for them all the same quite right too the risk of course was mine not theirs that's the law you know they cost me two thousand each but come said mrs newbury i think we must go and dress for dinner franklin will be frightfully put out if we're late franklin is our butler she went on seeing that mr spillikins didn't understand the reference and as we brought him out from england we have to be rather careful with a good man like Franklin, one is always so afraid of losing him, and after last night we have to be doubly careful. Why last night? asked Mr. Spillikins. Oh, it wasn't much, said Mrs. Newbury. In fact, it was merely an accident. Only it just chanced that at dinner, quite late in the mill, when we had nearly everything—we dine very simply here, Mr. Spillikins—Mr. Newbury, who was thirsty, and who wasn't really thinking what he was saying, asked Franklin to give him a glass of hock. Franklin said at once, "'I'm very sorry, sir, I don't care to serve Hock after the entree.' "'And of course he was right,' said Dolphemia with emphasis. "'Exactly. He was perfectly right. They know, you know. We were afraid that there might be trouble. But Mr. Newbury went and saw Franklin afterwards, and he behaved very well over it. But suppose we go and dress. It's half-past six already, and we've only an hour.' In this congenial company, Mr. Spilligan spent the next three days. Life at Castel Casteggio, as the Newburys loved to explain, was conducted on the very simplest plan. Early breakfast, country fashion, at nine o'clock. After that, nothing to eat till lunch, unless one cared to have lemonade or bottled ale sent out with a biscuit or a macaroon to the tennis court. Lunch itself was a perfectly plain midday meal, lasting till about one-thirty, and consisting simply of cold meats, say four kinds, and salads, with perhaps a made dish or two, and for anybody who cared for it, a hot steak or a chop, or both. After that one had coffee and cigarettes in the shade of the piazza, and waited for afternoon tea. This latter was served at a wicker table, in any part of the grounds that the gardener was not at the moment clipping, trimming, or otherwise using. Afternoon tea being over, one rested or walked on the lawn till it was time to dress for dinner. This simple routine was broken only by eruptions of people in motors or motor-boats from Penny Garride or Yodel Doodle Chalet. 
The whole thing, from the point of view of Mr. Spillikins, or Dolphemia, or Philippa, represented rusticity itself. To the little girl in green, it seemed as brilliant as the court of a sigh, especially evening dinner, a plain home meal, as the others thought it, when she had four glasses to drink out of, and used to wonder over such problems as whether you were supposed, when Franklin poured out wine, to tell him to stop, or to wait till he stopped without being told to stop, or other similar mysteries such as many people before and after have meditated upon. During all this time, Mr. Spillikins was nerving himself to propose to Dolphemia Rasselier-Brown. In fact, he spent part of his time walking up and down under the tree with Philippa Furlong, and discussing with her the proposal that he meant to make, together with such topics as marriage in general, and his own unworthiness. He might have waited indefinitely, had he not learned, on the third day of his visit, that Dolphemia was to go away in the morning to join her father at Nagahackett. That evening he found the necessary nerve to speak, and the proposal in almost every aspect of it was most successful. "'By Jove!' Spillikins said to Philippa Furlong next morning, in explaining what had happened. "'She was awfully nice about it. I think she must have guessed, in a way, don't you, what I was going to say.' "'But at any rate she was awfully nice. Let me say everything I wanted, and when I explained what a fool I was, she said she didn't think I was half such a fool as people thought me. But it's all right. It turns out that she isn't thinking of getting married. I asked her if I might always go on thinking of her, and she said I might.' And that morning, when Dolphemia was carried off in the motor to the station, Mr. Spillikins, without exactly being aware how he had done it, had somehow transferred himself to Philippa. "'Isn't she a splendid girl?' he said at least ten times a day to Nora, the little girl in green. And Nora always agreed, because she really thought Philippa a perfectly wonderful creature. There is no doubt that, but for a slight shift of circumstances, Mr. Spillikins would have proposed to Miss Furlong. Indeed, he spent a good part of his time rehearsing little speeches that began, "'Of course I know I am an awful ass in a way,' or, "'Of course I know that I am not at all the sort of fellow,' and so on. But not one of them ever was delivered." for it so happened that on the Thursday, one week after Mr. Spillikins' arrival, Philippa went again to the station in the motor, and when she came back there was another passenger with her, a tall young man in tweed, and they both began calling out to the Newburys from a distance of at least a hundred yards. And both the Newburys suddenly exclaimed, "'Why, it's Tom!' and rushed off to meet the motor. And there was such a laughing and jubilation as the two descended, and carried Tom's valises to the veranda, that Mr. Spillikins felt as suddenly and completely out of it as the little girl in green herself, especially as his ear had caught, among the first things said, the words, "'Congratulate us, Mrs. Newbury, we're engaged!' After which Mr. Spillikins had the pleasure of sitting and listening while it was explained in wicker chairs on the veranda that Philippa and Tom had been engaged already for ever so long, in fact, nearly two weeks, only they had agreed not to say a word to anybody till Tom had gone to North Carolina and back to see his people. And as to whom Tom was, or what was the relation between Tom and the Newburys, Mr. Spillikins neither knew or cared, nor did it interest him in the least that Philippa had met Tom in Bermuda, and that she hadn't known that he even knew the Newburys, nor any other of the exuberant disclosures of the moment. In fact, if there was any one period rather than another when Mr. Spillikins felt corroborated in his private view of himself, it was at this moment. So the next day Tom and Philippa vanished together. "'We shall be quite a small party now,' said Mrs. Newbury. "'In fact, quite by ourselves till Mrs. Everleigh comes, and she won't be here for a fortnight.' 
at which the heart of the little girl in green was glad, because she had been afraid that other girls might be coming, whereas she knew that Mrs. Everleigh was a widow with four sons, and must be ever so old, past forty. The next few days were spent by Mr. Spillikins almost entirely in the society of Nora. He thought them, on the whole, rather pleasant days, but slow. To her they were an uninterrupted dream of happiness never to be forgotten. The Newburys left them to themselves, not with any intent, it was merely that they were perpetually busy walking about the grounds of Castel Casteggio, blowing up things with dynamite, throwing steel bridges over gullies, and hoisting heavy timber with derricks. Nor were they to blame for it, for it had not always been theirs to command dynamite and control the forces of nature. There had been a time, now long ago, when the two Newburys had lived, both of them, on twenty dollars a week, and Mrs. Newbury had made her own dresses, and Mr. Newbury had spent vigorous evenings in making handmade shelves for their sitting-room. That was long ago, and since then Mr. Newbury, like many other people of those earlier days, had risen to wealth and Castel Casteggio, while others, like Nora's father, had stayed just where they were. So the Newburys left Peter and Nora to themselves all day. Even after dinner, in the evening, Mr. Newbury was very apt to call to his wife in the dusk from some distant corner of the lawn. "'Margaret, come over here and tell me if you don't think we might cut down this elm, tear the stump out by the roots, and throw it into the ravine.' And the answer was, "'One minute, Edward. Just wait till I get a wrap.' Before they came back, the dusk had grown to darkness, and they had redynamited half the estate. During all of which time Mr. Spilligan sat with Nora on the piazza. He talked, and she listened. He told her, for instance, all about his terrific experiences in the oil business, and about his exciting career at college, or presently they went indoors and Nora played the piano, and Mr. Spillikins sat and smoked and listened. In such a house as the Newburys, where dynamite and the greater explosives were everyday matters, a little thing like the use of tobacco in the drawing-room didn't count. As for the music, "'Go right ahead,' said Mr. Spillikins. "'I'm not musical, but I don't mind music a bit.' In the daytime they played tennis. There was a court at one end of the lawn beneath the trees, all chequered with sunlight and mingled shadow. Very beautiful, Nora thought, though Mr. Spillikins explained that the spotted light put him off his game. In fact, it was owing entirely to this bad light that Mr. Spillikins' fast drives, wonderful though they were, somehow never got inside the service court. Nora, of course, thought Mr. Spillikins a wonderful player. She was glad, in fact it suited them both, when he beat her six to nothing. She didn't know and didn't care that there was no one else in the world that Mr. Spillikins could beat like that. Once he even said to her, "'By gad, you don't play half a bad game, you know. I think, you know, with practice you'd come on quite a lot.' After that the games were understood to be more or less in the form of lessons, which put Mr. Spillikins on a pedestal of superiority, and allowed any bad strokes on his part to be viewed as a form of indulgence. Also, as the tennis was viewed in this light, it was Nora's part to pick up the balls at the net and throw them back to Mr. Spillikins. He let her do this, not from rudeness, for it wasn't in him, but because in such a primeval place as Castel Casteggio, the natural primitive relation of the sexes is bound to reassert itself. But of love Mr. Spillikins never thought. He had viewed it so eagerly and so often from a distance, that when it stood, here modestly at his very elbow, he did not recognise its presence. His mind had been fashioned, as it were, to connect love with something stunning and sensational, with Easter hats and harem skirts, and the luxurious consciousness of the unattainable. 
Even at that there is no knowing what might have happened. Tennis, in the checkered light of sun and shadow cast by summer leaves, is a dangerous game. There came a day when they were standing on each side of the net, and Mr. Spillikins was explaining to Nora the proper way to hold a racket, so as to be able to give those magnificent backhand sweeps of his, by which he generally drove the ball halfway to the lake, and explaining this involved putting his hand right over Nora's on the handle of the racket, so that for just half a second her hand was clasped tight in his and if that half-second had been lengthened out into the whole second, it is quite possible that what was already subconscious in his mind would have broken its way triumphantly to the surface, and Nora's hand would have stayed in his, how willingly, for the rest of their two lives. But just at that moment Mr. Spillikins looked up, and he said in quite an altered tone, "'By Jove! Who's that awfully good-looking woman getting out of the motor?' And their hands unclasped. Nora looked over towards the house and said, "'Why, it's Mrs. Everly. I thought she wasn't coming for another week.' "'I say,' said Mr. Spillikin, straining his short sight to the utmost, "'what perfectly wonderful golden hair, eh?' "'Why, it's—' Nora began, and then she stopped. It didn't seem right to explain that Mrs. Everly's hair was dyed. "'And who's that tall chap standing beside her?' said Mr. Spillikins. "'I think it's Captain Cormorant.' "'But I don't think he's going to stay. "'He's only brought her up in the motor from town.' "'By Jove! How good of him!' said Spillikins. "'And this sentiment in regard to Captain Cormorant, "'though he didn't know it, "'was to become a keynote of his existence.' "'I didn't know she was coming so soon,' said Nora, "'and there was weariness already in her heart. "'Certainly she didn't know it, "'still less did she know, or anyone else, "'that the reason for Mrs. Everly coming "'was because Mr. Spillikins was there.' She came with a set purpose, and she sent Captain Colmorant directly back in the motor, because she didn't want him on the premises. "'Oughtn't we go up to the house?' said Nora. "'All right,' said Mr. Spillikins, with great alacrity. "'Let's go.' Now, as this story began with the information that Mrs. Everly is at present Mrs. Everly Spillikins, there is no need to pursue in detail the stages of Mr. Spillikins' wooing. Its course was swift and happy. Mr. Spillikins, having seen the back of Mrs. Everly's head, had decided instantly that she was the most beautiful woman in the world, and that impression is not easily corrected in the half-light of a shaded drawing-room, nor across a dinner-table lighted only with candles with deep red shades, nor even in the daytime through a veil. In any case, it is only fair to state that if Mrs. Everly was not, and is not, a singularly beautiful woman, Mr. Spillikins still doesn't know it and in point of attraction the homage of such experts as Captain Cormorant and Lieutenant Hawke speaks for itself. So the course of Mr. Spillikins' love, for love it must have been, ran swiftly to its goal. Each stage of it was duly marked by his comments to Nora. "'She is a splendid woman,' he said. "'So sympathetic. She always seems to know just what one's going to say.' So she did, for she was making him say it. "'By Jove!' he said a day later. "'Mrs. Everly's an awfully fine woman, isn't she? "'I was telling her about my having been in the oil business for a little while, "'and she thinks that I'd really be awfully good in money things. "'She said she wished she had me to manage her money for her.' "'This also was quite true, "'except that Mrs. Everly had not made it quite clear "'that the management of her money was of the form generally known as deficit financing. "'In fact, her money was, very crudely stated, non-existent, "'and it needed a lot of management.' A day or two later Mr. Spillikins was saying, 
"'I think Mrs. Everly must have had great sorrow, don't you? "'Yesterday she was showing me a photograph of her little boy. "'She has a little boy, you know.' "'Yes, I know,' said Nora. "'She didn't add that she knew that Mrs. Everly had four. "'And she was saying how awfully rough it is "'having him always away from her at Dr. Something's Academy where he is.' And very soon after that, Mr. Spillikins was saying, with quite a quaver in his voice, "'By Jove! Yes, I'm awfully lucky. I never thought for a moment that she'd have me, you know. A woman like her, with so much attention and everything, I can't imagine what she sees in me.' Which was just as well. And then Mr. Spillikins checked himself, for he noticed, this was on the veranda in the morning, that Nora had a hat and a jacket on, and that the motor was rolling towards the door. "'I say,' he said, "'Are you going away?' "'Yes, didn't you know?' said Nora. "'I thought you heard them speaking of it at dinner last night. "'I have to go home. Father's alone, you know.' "'Oh, I'm awfully sorry,' said Mr. Spillikins. "'We shan't have any more tennis.' "'Good-bye,' said Nora, and as she said it and put out her hand, "'there were tears brimming up into her eyes. "'But Mr. Spillikins, being short of sight, didn't see them. "'Good-bye,' he said. Then, as the motor carried her away, he stood for a moment in a sort of reverie. Perhaps certain things that might have been rose unformed and inarticulate before his mind, and then a voice called from the drawing-room within, in a measured and assured tone, "'Peter, darling, where are you?' "'Coming!' cried Mr. Spillikins, and he came. On the second day of the engagement, Mrs. Everly showed to Peter a little photograph and a brooch. "'This is Gib, my second little boy,' she said. Mr. Spillikins started to say, "'I didn't know,' and then checked himself and said, "'By gad, what a fine-looking little chap, eh? I'm awfully fond of boys.' "'Dear little fellow, isn't he?' said Mrs. Everly. "'He's really rather taller than that now, because this picture was taken a little while ago.' And the next day she said, "'This is Willie, my third boy.' And on the day after that she said, "'This is Sib, my youngest boy. I'm sure you'll love him.' "'I'm sure I shall,' said Mr. Spillikins. He loved him already for being the youngest. And so, in the fullness of time, nor was it so very full either, in fact only about five weeks, Peter Spillikins and Mrs. Everly were married in St. Asaph Church on Plutoria Avenue. And the wedding was one of the most beautiful and sumptuous of the weddings of the September season— there were flowers and bridesmaids in long veils and tall ushers in frock coats and awnings at the church door and strings of motors with wedding favours on imported chauffeurs and all that goes to invest marriage on plutoria avenue with its peculiar sacredness the face of the young rector mr fairforth furlong wore the added saintliness that springs from a five hundred dollar fee the whole town was there or at least everybody that was anybody and if there was one person absent, one who sat by herself in the darkened drawing-room of a dull little house on a shabby street, who knew or cared? So after the ceremony the happy couple, for were they not so, left for New York. There they spent their honeymoon. They had thought of going, it was Mr. Spillikins' idea, to the coast of Maine, but Mrs. Everly Spillikins said that New York was much nicer, so restful, whereas everyone knows the coast of Maine is frightfully noisy. Moreover, it so happened that before the Everly Spillikins had been more than four or five days in New York, the ship of Captain Cormorant dropped anchor in the Hudson, and when the anchor of that ship was once down it generally stayed there, 
so the captain was able to take the Everly Spillikinses about in New York, and to give a tea for Mrs. Everly Spillikins on the deck of his vessel, so that she might meet the officers, and another tea in a private room of a restaurant on Fifth Avenue, so that she might meet no one but himself. And at this tea, Captain Cormorant said, among other things, "'Did he kick up rough at all when you told him about the money?' And Mrs. Everly, now Mrs. Everly Spillikins, said, "'Not he!' I think he's actually pleased to know that I haven't any. Do you know, Arthur, he's really an awfully good fellow. And as she said it, she moved her hand away from under Captain Cormorant's on the tea-table. I say, said the captain, don't get sentimental over him. So that is how it is that the Everly Spillikins came to reside on Plutoria Avenue in a beautiful stone house, with a billiard-room and an extension on the second floor. Through the windows of it, one can almost hear the click of the billiard-balls, and a voice saying, Hold on, father, you had your shot. End of chapter 5, part 2 Recording by Linda Ferguson